everyone. Welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. Today, we were joined by Michael O'Rourke. He is the CEO of Grove. Grove is tasked with building and maintaining the core protocol of the Pocket Network, but is also going to primarily be focusing on building the tools and onboarding the next wave of developers and users that will leverage this core infrastructure that allows us to use these blockchain ecosystems. In this conversation, I got to speak with Michael and learn about his aha moment when he first discovered Bitcoin and the power that it offered in being able to remit funds across international boundaries, as well as kind of hear the psych that he had when he first wrote his first Ethereum smart contract and realized the power of the immutability of this thing that would live forever without anybody being able to change it. We also spoke about the core value that decentralization offers in terms of anti-censorship. And we talked about the robust market share that Pocket Network has been able to derive of all Web3-based RPC calls, as well as acknowledging the future that the team needs to build for. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with Michael, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today, we're joined by Michael O'Rourke. How are you doing today, Michael? I'm doing great, Alan. How about you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm super psyched to chat with you on this call. I normally would say what the title is of the company you work for, but you guys just went through a rebranding. So can you tell us what your title is and the new company you're working for? Yeah, I'm the CEO of Grove Infrastructure, formerly known as Pocket Network Inc., which, as I'm sure you can imagine, can get confusing having Pocket Network, Pocket Network Inc., Pocket Network Foundation, Pocket Network DAO. So as the protocol grew, it felt very prudent for us to separate the actual company from the protocol itself. Perfect. Yeah. I work in a blockchain ecosystem myself that has this bifurcated three-headed monster that leads the direction of the ecosystem. So super psyched to dig into that in a little bit. But I kind of want to jump into the deep end here. And I was watching one of your previous podcasts where you mentioned that in 2017, during the crazy ICO boom, that 80% of all the activity went through one server, essentially. So you brought up this really philosophical question that got my gears rolling and that if we have 80% of the activity going through like a single server, then that makes the opportunity for a nation state attack on a network to be possible. So to jump off into our conversation, how do these decentralized systems we're building really compete against that? Because the nation state is the singular entity that has this all-encompassing power, and we're just hodgepodge of peer-to-peer networks. So from your perspective, what is the ways in which these decentralized networks can amalgamate, work together, and empower one another to prevent a nation-state attack in that scenario? Yeah, yeah, you're not kidding. We're really jumping off the, off the deep end here. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think there's two pieces to this. There's kind of the supply and demand. And in a traditional context, whether it's Amazon Web Services or something like that, Amazon owns both the supply and the demand of every piece of the stack right? They host the infrastructure and they also 
have with different startups and users and so on developers building on Amazon Web Services. So for me, it's about separating those two things and creating the ability for people to basically build businesses on both sides of it. And if you have a large enough market that is global, you can then actually begin to fight against any individual nation state attack, for example. So as to use Pocket Network as an example, we've got a, a supply side that's quite global where we have people running nodes in 20 plus countries. And we're in the part of the evolution to have the same thing happen in the demand side. And that's where I think the real magic comes in because we have Grove here, which builds on Pocket Network and is offering RPC service as a US-based company. But by being able to give the opportunity and enable others to build our same business around the globe with their own take on it, their own technology, whatever it is, you then have created a system that is uh, supranational or above the jurisdictions of just the United States, for example. Awesome. How did you get to this point? What was your career trajectory since studying in Florida and then ending up here? <laughs> because 10 years ago, this wasn't a field. And now 10 years later, we're building not just blockchain networks, but like services for blockchain networks. And now, as you just mentioned, supply and demand side services as well. So maybe just kind of give us like the short umbrella overview of what your time has been like since you graduated from USF? Yeah, it, it took me a little bit longer to graduate, about eight years. It took me a while to, to find my way. But throughout my time at USF, I worked at um, some credit unions uh, here in Tampa selling loans and sell thousands of credit reports. You see how messed up the financial system can be for some reason. And that was in 2011 and 2012. And I would say that sufficiently radicalized me for when I read up Bitcoin article on, on Wired Magazine in, in 2013, ended up on the subreddit, read the white paper, having, you know, not being born in this country, having used Western Union before, kind of understood it pretty quickly and just kind of kind of drank the Kool-Aid from, from there in 2013. While I was at USF, I was studying international studies. I wanted to be a diplomat at one point. And throughout that time, I learned to code for, for iOS, decided to, I had already been coding for about a year before I graduated. And then started to professionally be an iOS developer for a few years uh, before I met my startup co-founders or my, my pocket co-founders in Sarasota, Florida, back in 2015, 2016 timeframe. And so we were speaking before we hit the record button. I myself am a former Floridian. And so one of the things I really like about Colorado, you might have been to eat Denver, maybe not, but we have this really robust blockchain community here. And you've actually been really active in the Tampa Bay, St. Pete Bay area in the local blockchain and crypto community there. So what is just like the vibe there? What's the scene like there? Are you working around a bunch of builders? Are there founders there? What's the type of interest level for your local community? Yeah, it's not quite as builder focused as like, say, New York or Denver in, in some cases, but it's actually gotten a lot better over the years, or at least you know, necessarily better is not necessarily the right word, but it's definitely evolved over the last few years. Shout out to Gabe and Rosa for, for running the Bitcoin meetup every other Wednesday since 2013. Back then, it was four or five of us. You'd have a couple older Floridians come in and say, what's this Bitcoin thing? And then you'd start to have the cloud miners come in and try to sell their stuff, which I, you know, ironically, a pocket in some respects <laughs> is running infrastructure in a different kind of a cloud. And it's really evolved over the last few years to run the, the Tampa Bay Blockchain Developer Meetup when we were first starting Pocket. And I was learning Solidity and and that started to build a few people. And now I went to a meetup earlier this year and 
it was like 50% builders and, and 50% people who are just interested in the space want to understand more and learn more. So I think it's a pretty healthy mix, which is, which is pretty cool. And I still, to this day, host it, uh, host the speed up. Sometimes, mostly virtually, now it's once a month in person, but it used to be every, every other week in person. It's kind of really refreshing right now to be... Yeah, this is probably your third or fourth bull bear cycle, but it's really refreshing to kind of be in the, the grips of 2023, which is a little more existential than the 2018 bear. We have at a high level, a high national policy level, we're starting to talk about blockchain and crypto and all this. So you're getting the sense that there's folks who are kind of like unfazed by this. You're starting to see builders kind of come out the woodwork. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's still the case. I mean, if you were in Denver or HCC, I think the energy is, is super clear. I mean, we do have two major major headwinds, obviously the, the regulatory situation. And also really, this is the first time crypto has been in an environment where money isn't free. So I think we're figuring out how to grapple with that. But at the end of the day, I mean, if you go to any one of these more developer-focused conferences, you're seeing more and more people building every single day. And more interesting things being built in hackathons, more professional things. And, and for me, that's just incredibly inspiring and exciting. That's just, it's always been the case. It's what you, you know, price isn't always an indicator of, of the activity. And historically, uh, we've consistently seen that increase over time. Yeah. And of course, like we're seeing magnificent numbers of the national debt going up by hundreds of billions of days a day now. So I guess kind of that 2013 version of you that first stumbled on Bitcoin, who had these experiences of sending money to, to family and friends abroad, maybe that rings a little bit more true or continues to ring a little true to you today, that kind of rhyme and reason for why Bitcoin exists. But something that I'm also really interested in is, is while you were learning iOS, is this when your interest in Solidity peaked? What made you want to start building on Ethereum when you first learned that you could code smart contracts? Yeah, you know, it was actually after the DAO hack when I first tried out Ethereum, actually. So this was, had to have been summer, fall, it had been fall 2016 after the DAO hack. And I just remember reading about it, going into Ethereum subreddit and, and seeing Solidity. I was pretty, pretty knee deep in, in kind of the iOS thing. And I was like, oh, I can try to write a smart contract. And there's only been a couple of times that my mind has been just truly just blown when I write some kind of software, when I've written some software in the, in, in the past. And the first time was the first time I made a HTTPS connection where I was actually pulled data in and showed it to the screen. I was just like, wow, this is barely hanging by a thread. And this is, if this is how the internet works, you know, this is, that was just a very kind of mind blowing moment. And the second one was really the first smart contract I deployed because, you know, I deployed the software and I knew no one could mess with it. And, and having, you know, used like the Twitter API, the Facebook API, the Google API, and literally getting kind of pulled by them changing it. And I was having to scramble to adjust something or fix something. Just the idea that you could just change this text because I just allowed it and no one else can do anything about it was just uh, another one of those kind of mind-blowing moments. And that's really when my co-founders and I really started thinking about what to do and what to build in the space. Yeah, so... Before we jump into Pocket Network and Grove and the Pocket Network Foundation, a lot of our audience, they're not like, this isn't the first time they're hearing about Bitcoin or Ethereum or, or even various different blockchains or cryptocurrencies. But granted that, you know, you kind of are in the weeds and you're a builder. Can we just like go over just a really simple term and just kind of Eli5 what RPC nodes are? Yeah, the best way I can describe it is every time you open up a wallet, either on your phone or your computer, 
and you see the little loading screen before you see your balance. And then all of a sudden you see you have like five ETH on your MetaMask wallet, for example. That data comes from a full node and that comes from services like Pocket, what Pocket is set out to build. So at the end of the day, really what we do is allow developers to read and write data for their users. So when you make a transaction or when you're seeing your balance on your wallet, that literally just comes from services like ours. And I'm not sure if it's the case today, but last year you guys were churning through quite a large amount of traffic on a daily basis. So what is the kind of level of use and activity that you're seeing with Pocket Network today? Yeah, we stayed pretty stable, generally in the one to two billion mark. We grew very quickly from, and for context, you know, this is still a drop in the bucket. I think I would, I would estimate there to be somewhere between 100 and 200 billion daily RPC requests a day that are actually paid for that developers need. You know, there's a, I think there's a bunch of other kind of free traffic, but let's call it just the, the world of which people actually pay for it and, and, and need it, really deeply need it. So we're doing, you know, one to two billion of that, you know, 100 to, to 200 billion today. But really, we we built out the network. We launched it in 2020. And really, it was the kind of first network of its kind. And that first year, we really spent just kind of fixing things. You know, we forked Tendermint. We had a bunch of issues scaling the network on the supply side. And then we had to figure out, okay, we have all these nodes. Like, how do we do this quality of service thing? How do we make sure that a developer can get their data or the user can get their data in a meaningful amount of time? Because if you're going to wait five seconds for your wallet balance to use, you're going to be like, screw this. I don't want to use this this wallet or this app or whatever it might be, right? So that was when the second year of Pocket is when we really kind of figured that out. Uh, the protocol was stable. We got to a reasonable level of latency and, and quality of service. And I said reasonable, this is about 500 milliseconds or, or half a second. And uh, we were doing maybe like five or 10 million requests a day at the time. So we just said, screw it, let's open the floodgates and let's see how far this can scale. And our assumption was that the more scale we would get, the more we would understand the edge cases and the problems and therefore improve the quality of service as we went. So yeah, we went from about 10 million requests to over a billion in about 10 months. And we were like, okay, this is uh, this works. The whole thing actually works at scale, at a meaningful scale. That's really what led us to Grove and where we are today. But that was a really fun and exciting time. Because I mean, I, I still wake up today and I see Pocket Network and I'm just like, holy shit, this thing is like coordinating infrastructure on a global scale without taking any rent, picking the, the nodes and, and sending the traffic. And it's just, it's really a, a mind-blowing thing and, and billion of anything is a lot. And, and for us to be able to get to this scale has just been really incredible. And, and, and really since then, once we got to that level, it's been like, okay, one, this is costing us a lot of money on infrastructure. Two, you know, we've got some decent amount of some awareness. Now let's go into the next phase where it's like, let's prove out the business. So that not only us can do it, but many, many others can do it, which is, you know, calls back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of this call. Yeah. So congratulations on moving fast and not breaking things. So what? Are- well, lots of things. Bro. <laughs> lots of things. Bro. Let's be clear. Lots of things. Bro. <laughs> what are the pocket network supports integrates with? I noticed you mentioned Tendermint, but you're also talking about Ethereum. So is this a, a like a multi-chain sort of? network, what does it look like when a brand new chain, let, let's say a new app chain from the Cosmos ecosystem wants to integrate with Pocket Network? What does that look like? Yeah, it's, you know, it's more of a coordination problem. It's more like, hey, you know, there's a user or a customer who's like, hey, I need Evmos, for example. And then we'll go and say, hey, okay, we can support you for Evmos as kind of the main gateway or portal provider and say, hey, you know, let's do this. We say, 
Uh, it's, so for us, it's more of a coordination problem. So we put out kind of the bat signal to the supply side of the network, say, hey, we're going to launch Evmos and whitelist it on the protocol so that you can get paid. Because you can list any chain, but you have to get whitelisted on the protocol as a chain ID to actually receive POC for serving the traffic. Then, you know, let's say by, you know, by Halloween, so we're, we're here in October, but, you know, by Halloween day, we're going to, which is a bad idea to launch a chain on Halloween, but either way, we're going to launch Evmos on this date. That gives the node runners enough time to say, hey, spin up their infrastructure if they want to support it. And then we go ahead and send some tests and, and effectively launch it on that day. Right. And, and the difference there from a centralized company is that they own the entire stack and have to maintain and update a lot more software as one single monolithic organization than what we do as a very much more nimble, small kind of gateway company, right? You can kind of think of Rove as more of like the Uber for nodes, if you will. We don't own or control any of the supply, but we help manage the demand side there. Cool. And I think I'm following with where you're going with this, but I just want to clarify, can you just Eli5, what you mean when you're talking about with RPC node infrastructure, what you mean by supply side and demand side? Yeah. So I view supply demand as supply side are the people actually running the nodes themselves. Uh, we've got, you know, dozens of different folks that are running many, many different nodes for many chains that we support as, as pocket, which is over, over 40 today. And then for me, the demand side are the developers who need access to that nodes. So Grove provides kind of this portal. So the developers could three clicks, get an endpoint, and then put that in their application and just start building, right? And it's our job, not just this group, but eventually many other providers on top of the network to drive that demand traffic to the supply side or the node runners of the network with as best quality of service and, and, and everything that goes on with that. Perfect. So you guys launched in 2020. This is like DeFi summer, like EVM is still mostly just Ethereum, like rollups are years away. Maybe people are starting to talk about Avalanche and Cosmos. So during the tenure of Pocket Network, you guys have had to kind of like adapt to these new alt L1s that arose in popularity. You had to adapt to these L2s that also became more and more used over the past few years. So as you guys are building this infrastructure for decentralized networks, what was it like with this onslaught of these new of the rise in these new chains and also having to like keep up with adding support to Pocket Network as like more and more not Ethereum chains became popular? Yeah, well, I've always believed that we're going to live in a world with tens of thousands, maybe maybe even hundreds of thousands of blockchains. So we designed Pocket such that it would be very easy to add these chains. And at the end of the day, we want to go where the RPC traffic is and which means where the developers are effectively. That first year, we just supported Ethereum and Pocket. And we made the explicit decision to add as many chains as possible. So to give you an example, what really helped catalyze our growth back then was, you know, we decided to add Harmony. Harmony as a blockchain in 2021. And they had an app called DeFi Kingdom start to just absolutely explode on the Harmony chain. And we already supported them. And there was a moment in time when the kind of foundation operated RPC was having issues or went down and all that traffic ended up settling on pocket, right? So for us, it's always been kind of skating where the puck is going in the sense of trying to support these chains and growing with them, especially as their ecosystems grow and really trying to leverage Pocket's unique properties and help these communities and these blockchains grow as well. Yeah, that's really cool to just be there and ready for when those parabolic movements happen. So how does Pocket Network 
earn fees, earn revenue, earn an income? Is it in the pocket token? Are you earning tokens on these various different networks that you guys are supporting? What does that kind of economic model look like? Yeah. So forgetting about the the networks and the customers and stuff for a second, Pocket Network is a mint, burn, and stake model. So rather than transferring value direct via you know, fees or state channels or something like that, what we do is we have the demand side. In our case, we're facilitating all of that. We buy, then burn, pocked, which results in minting. Well, it doesn't result in minting. Every time someone creates an RPC request, that results in a mint on the supply side. And eventually, once we get to an equilibrium, you'll have the emissions or the total supply in effect be flat pocket, meaning the the burning will be equivalent to the amount of pocket being emitted by the supply side. So what we do is we really transfer this value by buying and burning pocket, and then on the other side, the supply side. And we just, you know, from first principles, we just found that this was a far more efficient way for us to transfer that value than kind of incurring this cost of coordination, where if you think about a network of a thousand validators and you're sending fees constantly and they're constantly coming with consensus around those fees, that gets really expensive very quickly. I mean, if you think about just the inertia of just a one-time stake that slowly gets burned and then they are then emitting or minting this pot in batches, basically, that's a much more efficient way to really transfer that value, which is why we, we landed on this model. Cool. So there's three entities that are in the pocket, well, charging the direction of the pocket ecosystem. So you have Grove, you have the Pocket Network Foundation, and then you also have the DAO. I have a few questions for each of them, but can you just kind of like elevator pitch? What are the three entities? What are they responsible for? And then we can go from there. Yeah, just to set some context, many blockchains, in my opinion, if you draw a triangle between a government, a corporation, and a religion, a blockchain is, is right in the middle, right right in the middle. And we intentionally designed a network and the governance and everything around it such that it reflected what we feel like a new institution or a new country governed by its users would look like. And definitely took inspiration from folks like Dash, who I think were probably the first to actually have a foundation actually governed by its master nodes back in the day, but we mapped it so that it fit its use case. But we basically have the development company, uh, which is some core maintainers of the protocol, which is Growth, right? Uh, formerly known as Pocket Network Inc. Uh, we've shifted from being a company that is uh, kind of building out this network that we built out the network that we launched to now shifting into building the business on top of the network and showing others how to do it as well. And with that change in, let's call it incentives, it's really critical to have a incredibly neutral steward of the protocol and facilitator of the protocol itself, which is where the foundation comes in. When the foundation comes in, because the world doesn't know how to really work with a DAO, you know, if you go to some corporation uh, or whoever it is, you want to throw a conference, whatever it is, or you want to hire someone from the DAO, that infrastructure really wasn't there to begin with. So we made sure we had this foundation that was able to be nimble enough to make decisions and have the capital to be able to facilitate and allocate to whatever it is that is to the benefit of the network, purely as that kind of an entity, basically. And, and the important part here, learning from things like Tezos and, and Aragon and, and some others that have had some issues with like their foundations and development companies and this sort of thing. I mean, it was really important for us to have the pocket DAO actually be able to have oversight and control over the foundation's directors. So what we did is we actually created this foundation in the Cayman Islands and we chose the Cayman Islands because they had the flexibility to say in the actual creation documents, 
the pocket DAO can hire and fire the foundation directors via vote. Uh, kind of taking that metaphor from countries, especially, we designed pocket DAO, which is literally anyone in the pocket ecosystem, whether you're a node runner, demand, community member, it doesn't matter, to be able to claim a vote to vote on the protocols matters, right? So so the pocket DAO really votes on on three main things. The monetary policy, protocol upgrades, and a treasury. So we have a certain amount of pocket that gets emitted that goes into the pocket treasury. And the DAO basically governs and manages all that on top of making sure that the foundation are good actors and are doing things, you know, within the will of the DAO. Because if I the DAO says, hey, go allocate, you know, a million dollars to this thing, but then they go and they they go and steal it or take it or something like that. Well, now the DAO can actually fire them and, and replace them, which is really cool in my opinion. And and when I, you know, taking the, the company metaphor, we have we have Grove in here that is really trying to to not just enable ourselves, but but many others within the ecosystem as well. So that's kind of a quick overview of three main entities. That said, there's you know dozens of other entities that are contributing to the protocol and individuals and this sort of thing as well. Yeah, let alone the the businesses that are coming to to build on top of Pocket Network and everything like that. So that's really super cool, actually. What's a politically correct way to phrase this? Have you guys gone through any transitions where you needed to effectively leverage the power of the DAO to oust somebody who was acting in a negligent manner on behalf of the foundation? No, <laughs> thankfully. I was actually on both the foundation and I was uh, and obviously I'm MC of, of Grove. Um, I uh, willfully and willingly stepped out from that. And we now have three fantastic directors, Jack, Dermot, and, and Nelson. And they also have their own independent team as well. So there's a clear well now, actually, between, you know, for example, Grove and the foundation. You know, before this year, that wasn't the case, but also the foundation wasn't really active or doing anything. So that separation as the protocol grew, as it became more decentralized, as Grove started to move into more operating a business, those incentives are really, really important to separate because it's very, very clear. Those things are intermingled. Uh, it gets very complicated very quickly. So it's very important for us to make sure that these stewards, the protocol, such that the foundation actually owns the pocket network IP and everything around that and the trademarks and everything around that, uh, the foundation owns that. Uh, and it's really important for them to be the steward, uh, the kind of the, the, the credibly neutral steward of the protocol. And, and in many ways, they have really the hardest job because they have so many different consistencies that they have that they work with and everyone more people more entities more more complication so which is the nature of these things well i mean also more people more complications that's a good thing right you guys were focused on building a protocol and now you're focused on building a business so what was that inflection point like when did you know that now 3 years later after you guys built pocket network you were like okay it's time to separate the identity of Pocket Network Inc., create Grove, and really remove Michael from the foundation and put you into this new role where you're looking to onboard new businesses, onboard new teams as a business use case and not necessarily as core developers to build out the infrastructure. Yeah, the core team is still under, under Grove. But what's really nice is that the foundation has hired a, a PM, uh, Mateo, who's, who's fantastic. So they're kind of, you know, this kind of leads into the foundation being the main facilitator or the shelling point behind the development of a protocol with Pocket. I kind of see a future where we'll have many entities with their own R&D protocol development teams contributing to the protocol. You know, and I think Bitcoin and, and Ethereum are very clear and obvious examples. You know, 
a Coinbase or BitGo or BitPay, forgive me, for example, hire Bitcoin protocol engineers to contribute because it does also help their business. Maybe they need a UX improvement where some important Bitcoin contribution helps, you know, make things a little bit easier, for example, right? Uh, and I wouldn't say it was one main inflection point. I'd say it's more of consistent tension points where you see how in your mind, if you're, if you're, if you're making a decision, you're like, huh, this is better for the protocol, for the business or vice versa. Right. And, you know, you want to be able to just separate that as soon as possible before it gets too intermingled. And I think we did that, frankly, at the, at the perfect time. Um, and thankfully we've got Jack and Durbin and Nelson, who all three of them I've worked with for really since 2014 in earnest. And there's really no one who I would trust more to, to actually be operating the foundation today. You're making decisions and you're just like, huh, this is not fully aligned. And what's really nice is that it's been an evolution. It's not an easy thing to do, but really the real harmony is getting the business incentives and what the business is building purely and perfectly aligned with what the protocol's incentives are. And I think that's where we're heading to. And I think we're going to be in a really good place related to that. Yeah, that's super cool. So what are the business use cases you're looking to attract now? Now that your focus is on Grove, you guys have done this rebrand. What are kind of like the next steps or the focal areas for you over the coming two quarters? Yeah. So every single, let's call it D-PIN protocol is, or many, most of them are going to have the same challenge that Pocket Network has. And this is a question of, who is building the software that's going to enable as many businesses as possible to operate on these networks? And what I mean by that is, I used Uber as an example, right? Now we have Uber, Grab, Line, uh, you name it, right? But these are all independent businesses that are just fully full stack, if you will, rather than using the same underlying infrastructure across the globe, right? And the question is, you know, is the foundation going to build out the software, give it out and have it at the races or, you know, go our route, which is build out the software, open source it and enable as many businesses as possible, as easily as possible to build on top of pocket. Right. And uh, the way they like to think of it is we're the first gateway, but I want to see a world with hundreds or thousands of gateways on top of the network. I think that's dictated by, by scale, by the market in terms of like what developers are building, what's being built. I think these things are dictated by even regional things. Like if I'm in Bangalore, India or Buenos Aires, Argentina, I could build a local gateway, for example. So the question that every single call it deep in protocol is going to ask themselves is like, how much space is there for how many businesses can be can be sustained by the underlying infrastructure of the protocol? And that's really going to be dictated by scale and the amount of economic might that uh, each one of these protocols is, is harnessing. And you mentioned name brands that we would recognize in our house, Uber, Lyft. These are companies that exist and everybody knows who they are. Are the kind of folks that you're starting to work with, are we migrating towards mainstream names, collaborating with Grove and building on top of Pocket Network? Or are we still dealing with like MetaMask and things that crypto natives know? When you say mainstream names, you mean like these larger enterprise tech companies? Yeah, is like Airbnb looking at this? Is like Visa looking at this? Just main big names that like are people who aren't listening to this podcast, everybody would know. Yeah, I think more on the financial side, yes. I don't think it's actually within, it's against Uber or Airbnb's incentive to actually look into this because it's it's to their benefit to own the entire stack. I think you see this with some of the larger, was it AAA, AAA gaming studios with everyone's like, why are you not putting NFTs in your game so that other people can use this because it's going to take away from, from our margins, right? So I think at least on the kind of general marketplace side of things, it's less 
less important because it's not within their kind of incentive structure, if you will. That said, I think it's pretty clear that some of the more financial side fintech and these sorts of apps and these sorts of businesses are definitely looking at it in different ways. I and mean, Robinhood, I think folks like you know, like Fidelity, OGs in the space, looking at it, for example, or have been looking at it and continue to. So it's more on that side, in my opinion, rather than let's call it the, the marketplace side. Now, there may be someone that sees an opportunity there and says, hey, let me leverage this. But I haven't really seen too much of that outside of like a, like a Nickelodeon selling, creating like an NFT marketplace to, to improve their brand, right? That's more of a media company, right? Rather than rather than a marketplace business. Yeah, this is kind of a philosophical question and maybe requires some beers rather than coffee. Still daytime here. But you did mention that like these decentralized protocols are essentially going to eat away at the value add that like a, a large conglomerate has when they silo their own tech stack. What does the world look like when... Let me take a step back. Like banks are starting to look at integrating DeFi protocols and doing more than just simply custodying Bitcoin and Ethereum. They're starting to see that there are alternative uses for these decentralized networks. And if they don't start building and learning how to use them in a decade or two, they might become irrelevant. So what does something similar look like for just big name brands that still want to own their entire tech stack what does that kind of inflection point look like for our future when these big companies are realizing, holy crap, there is actually benefit to outsourcing to these decentralized open source public networks and maybe we can build on top of this rather than fight it? Yeah, I think it'll be scale and size of, of the market and as we kind of chip away at their customers, right? What's really cool about the deep, the deep end space is that all of us are getting away from this self-referential, let's call it DeFi thing that happens where it's the same money moving around within the various different you know, blockchains or DeFi apps or, or whatever it might be. Just to give an example, I was on a panel, I'm sorry, mainnet a couple of weeks ago with the folks from, from Demo, Livepeer, and Helium. And Helium launched a $5 a month cell phone service using their hardware, for example. Demo has got this plug-in thing in your car, and it's actually creating real tangible benefit for non-blockchain people in the world, right? We're in a different position because we are uh, primarily catering to blockchain developers, but even then we're able to offer prices or advantages that is literally impossible for them to offer. So I think it's going to be a slow chipping away of increasing our market share as a collective relative to where these folks are until one day they're going to see and, and decide to integrate, build their own thing, whatever it might be to credibly compete against it. Um, I think as you know, collectively, we are effectively building an institution that creates optionality for more users around the world and, and really driving more competition for the world as it exists today. Awesome. I love it. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier, just supply demand. When there's more demand for this sort of everlasting supply that will actually reduce costs for large-scale existing industry and enterprise, that's when we really start to see these deep-in networks take off. And that's something I also want to touch base on. I've been kind of a degenerate since 2017. And I love when these new kind of acronyms pop up. And I have to really admit, DPEN is something that caught me off guard. I haven't really seen much in terms of this term being used before 2023. So it seems like Pocket Network, Helium, and these others are 
really pioneering in this space and kind of giving it a name now. So can you just, Eli5, what's Deepin? Uh, you gave some examples already, so we don't really need to to dig too deeply into it. But like, what is Deepin? Does it have to be like a company like Helium that sets up these wireless nodes that cell phone users can now tap into? Or could it also be something like uh, like tap and go experiences where there are NFC readers at a conference and you can tap your phone, kind of interact with the blockchain network. What does the whole spectrum look like? Yeah, so I, I think Masari coined this actually and have been pushing it, which makes sense why it isn't available. But it seems to have caught on. And for better for us, I think it's actually good to have a separate umbrella relative to like like DeFi as an example, right? I mean, Deepin is, is decentralized physical infrastructure networks. So if I'm building a device that allows people to scan their NFT, if it's, if it's not connected in some way or somehow to a blockchain, I wouldn't consider that under Deepin. But it's a pretty broad umbrella, right? A pocket network that is incentivized to make people run, you know, to buy servers or run bare metal infrastructure. You've got LivePeer that is doing what they're doing on, on the video side of things. You've got Helium that's incentivizing people to run these actual devices, right? Either in their homes or, or elsewhere. You know, Demo's got this little physical device that you put in your car, for example, right? The storage networks like we Filecoin, storage, you know, the name, the, the, the protocol called storage also fall under that umbrella. So it's, I think it's a, it's a broad umbrella, but I think it's nice that it creates a distinction of the type of protocol that we're, that we're building. And so how does Pocket Network fit into the whole deep and umbrella? If it was just me taking a glance from the outside looking in, it would just essentially be providing the infrastructure for these different networks to communicate with one another. Yeah, today it's it's just RPC. I think tomorrow it'll be things like indexing, supporting storage networks as well. Um, so layering on top of an Arweave or a Filecoin or an IPFS. Uh, and for example, like you can host LLMs. You may be able to host LLMs on Pocket, right? And incentivize people to run these models locally, right? For example. So there's a pretty well-known framework to thinking about the internet called the OSI stack, where it's seven layers. And it's basically from the physical infrastructure layer up to the networking layer and everything in between. And there's dozens of protocols in each of those seven kind of layers. I view kind of our, it's called a deep end stack to be in a similar way where you can kind of pick and choose like as if you were at a shopping store. Like I'm going to use Fleet for hosting. I'm going to use Filepoint for my files. I'm going to use Pocket for my RPC and indexing traffic. I'm going to use, you know, you know, and I'm going to plug in Helium for whatever reason, because that's the business that I'm building, right? So we're kind of building the core infrastructure to allow, I think, the future entrepreneurs of the world to actually build things that were literally impossible before, right? I mean, it took, what, the internet was, you know, ARPANET back in the early 60s, you know, it took 50 years to get to mobile, which then changed everything, right, in terms of how we live in, in our lives today. So I think we're, we're kind of seeing the puzzle pieces get put together and enabling people to pick and choose what pieces they, they would like to use for whatever interesting business that they'll be able to build in the future. Yeah, that's super cool. I remember when I was first getting into the crypto space in 2017, one of the things that everybody was throwing around was we're still in the early days, this is the equivalent of the internet in the early 90s. So now that we have the advent of things like Deepin, we're starting to see these various different types of distributed services that could be added to a tech stack to like better provide for a, an existing business's needs. I guess, where do you view we are now as an industry with the advent of things like DPIN and the fact that Pocket Network does need to exist? Is crypto still in the 90s if we're using the internet metaphor? Or have we made a bunch of progress? Is progress kind of slow and trudging? 
from your perspective, where do we stand in terms of Web3 mass adoption aligned with like how the internet was adopted? I would rather look at the kind of time scale, right? And knowing that over time, or each consecutive technology that gets built, uh, whether it's a communication technology or coordination technology, ends up getting to market more quickly uh, or getting mass adoption more quickly. So if the internet took 35-ish years for for kind of its Netscape moment, and we're year, we're, we're year 13, 14 into this experiment, I'd say we're probably five five to 10 years away at this point from, from something meaningful that really impacts the world. I'll give an example. Like back in the 90s, you had ISP providers popping up like left and right. And and I remember a story of, of another founder in this company. He built an ISP provider in, in Canada. It got to the point to where he couldn't buy enough copper wire to support the neighborhoods that needed the access to the internet, right? And I don't think we've gotten there yet in our space where literally everyone in the world is just trying to access this thing. And I don't think it's going to be like, I'm going to try to access the blockchain. I think it's going to be some set of apps or something that meaningfully improves our lives in such a way where it's like, holy shit, I have to like, I have to use it. Sorry. This is really helping me out or, or whatever it might be. So I still think we're a ways away from that. If you look at it at a time scale perspective, but the infrastructure that we're all building kind of in this deep in space is, is super hypercritical for this at the end of the day. And, you know, if you look at our scale as an industry, I mean, if there's a hundred to 200 billion, let's call it RPC requests, just at the, you know, talking about market land here, like Facebook is doing quadrillions of, of RPC requests, right? Uh, so we're still just a, a tiny, tiny fraction of the scale. And as we get to more scale, that's going to introduce more problems that need to get fixed, right? I'm a very big believer in uh, Fred Wilson, who's a pretty famous investor, uh, wrote a blog post years ago called the App Infrastructure Lifecycle, where kind of the app growth drives building an infrastructure. The infrastructure is there that allows people to build new things, which then drives the infrastructure again. It's a really, really amazing blog post. And I think kind of see it in the cycles within within our space, right? Everyone's like, we have all this infrastructure. We have so much block space. Where are the, where are the apps, right? As an example, where you just see it if you're on crypto Twitter, talking to people in conferences and, and that sort of thing. So I think we're just kind of in a part of the cycle. And Due to crypto incentives, we're actually able to, I believe, compress those cycles more so than, than we might have before. Yeah, absolutely. The thing that I keep thinking about right now, if it's the topic of the day, you know, if you're listening to this in four years, it might be something different. But friend tech right now is the major crypto native killer app. But we're still seeing like, for instance, today I'm seeing all these forks and a lot of people kind of getting wrecked off of corners that were cut because they were able to get SIM swapped or the fork just wasn't built as well as the initial protocol was. So I guess, where are we like moving forward? Who do you want to work with next? Do you want to work with the friend techs of the world or do you want to work with like the big mainstream, big brand names to kind of help slowly onboard and ease them into leveraging these decentralized protocols? What's kind of like Grove's plan of attack now that you guys have rebranded? Yeah, we want to enable as many businesses as possible. So whether that is large Fortune 500 company that needs to operate their own gateway with with a certain type of node, for example, or that is the, it's called the Polkadot RPC provider, or the person who wants to build a data business around like centralized social, for example, or gaming or uh, DeFi, you name it. Uh, we're kind of looking at everything, either enabling that or directly working with them ourselves. And a big part of the rebrand, obviously, was just to 
you know, separate, but also kind of elevate the business and, and which I, you know, I'm super happy and excited with it. I'm really happy with it. And, you know, very big believer in this uh, solar punk meme, if you will. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are really spending a lot of money and focused on improving or, or getting to space and, and, you know, trying to exit and which I think is important and critical, but, you know, we're building Grove is dependent and built on basically a coordination technology. And for me, that's kind of what it really highlights to is, you know, building the infrastructure so that we can really all settle on these public goods while enabling as many entrepreneurs as possible. Wrapping up, you said you had to end at the top of the hour. I want to ask kind of like a high level question. You're like legit an OG now. You're 10 years into the space. As an industry, do you think we've matured slower or faster than you initially would have thought of 10 years ago when you first read the Bitcoin white paper? Yeah, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I would have thought we would have been colonizing Mars by now. I was uh, way more optimistic about the pace of things. I think the the tourism, what is it? Um, it's, it's something I'm paraphrasing here, but but things don't move fast until they do. Uh, there's some there's some phrase there, but I think there's we're realizing how much hard work there is and where we're seeing the friction points in, in the real world with policy, with actually building useful things for people. These are just hard problems that just take really smart people and a lot of time to build. But once the things get put together, I think then we'll see an incredible inflection point. Um, I think similar to what we're seeing with, with AI, for example, and that's been around for much longer. People have been trying that, you know, trying to figure that out for much longer than, than crypto has at this point, right? So for me, it's it's these next five to 10 years that are going to be just incredibly exciting. And it's, it's just so interesting being in this moment in time, because there's a, there's a lot of cynicism in the space and you're not really at the bottom unless people are existentially questioning like why they're here in many ways. And, and you see that all over and in Twitter and in person. And I really do believe things aren't as bad or as good as they, as they seem. And at the end of the day, if you look at kind of the fundamentals and everyone is there's just, just an incredible amount of incredibly smart, smart people here that are, that are just building great technology. And I think there's going to be plenty of people that can find, uh, that can understand it and be able to put it together in a way that really drives the future that we're all trying to build here. Yeah. For the builders out there, there's no better time to build than during a bear. It is a lot easier to focus. There's a lot less chatter going around the water cooler and there's a lot less noise. Wrapping up, if somebody wants to get in contact with you to build with Grove, or I guess also if somebody is interested in learning more about the DAO, because it sounds like there are two different kind of roles that the listener might be able to have. What's the best way for folks to get in contact with you to learn about the services that Grove can help provide a company? And what's the best way that maybe a listener or a pocket hodler can participate in the DAO? Yeah, I would join Pocket Network Discord and also the Poctopus Den, which is the Telegram chat there. Related to, there's a ton of great people there that are really able to, to answer any question. And on the Grove side, um, you can definitely ping me on Twitter. It's my last name, just with an underscore instead of an apostrophe at or work. So also, if you want to keep up with what's happening in Pocketland, I'd recommend Pocket News. We don't know who they are. We think it's just an amalgamation of people, but these folks really, they really do a good job of amplifying everything that's happening in the ecosystem. And it's, it's quite incredible to see. Awesome, Michael. It was great to chat with you for an hour. I was really excited to dig in and, and kind of get a little nerdy and uh, you exceeded my expectations. So thank you so much for sharing this time to talking about the cool things that you're working on and to share your insights. It was really awesome. Thanks, Dylan. It was a pleasure. And it was awesome talking to you. Well, 
What did you think of that conversation? I thought it was really awesome to hear about the value of decentralization that the leadership of the pocket network ecosystem places on the concept. It was also really cool to hear Michael explain like I'm five, some really complicated, decentralized architecture and infrastructure concepts. And it was just also really cool to hear about the future of this whole blockchain and cryptocurrency industry from someone like Michael, who has been here for 10 years, has been building here for more than five, and is still equally excited about the future that this technology can offer us as he was when he first landed here. With all that said, I wanna thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you are a NEO token holder, you can continue to support the show by voting for NEO News Today as your council member. We've proudly been serving the NEO ecosystem since 2017, and we'll continue to do so using portions of our income to not only invest into projects that are building in that ecosystem, but also into the Smart Economy podcast so we can keep bringing you guys great guests. We're looking forward to catching you next time.